Jesus led me all the way. That's all by grace, right? You know, that's none of your doing. We sang this morning that we're saved by grace alone. And our creator is worthy to be praised for that. The grace of God saves and the grace of God grows and the grace of God sustains. So it's all of God. That's really what our sermon is about this morning. As you turn your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 6, we're going to seek to cover the first 10 verses before our conclusion today. Hail him who saves you by his grace and crown him Lord of all. Lord of all, not just creation, but Lord of all that is your life. We do not know salvation until we know Christ as Lord. And the grace of God certainly compels us to commit to him as Christ, as Lord, when we're born again. And then the indwelling spirit of God compels us by that same grace to submit our life to his lordship as we learn his word and seek to little bit by little bit learn to live the word that we learn it's all by god's grace and this is the the mess the messaging the message that paul is giving to the ones who have been adversely affected in corinth by religious unbelief among them who had sought to distract them from the sufficiency of the grace of God to save, to grow, and to sustain. Trying to draw their attention back to grace and its omnipotent ability to transform a life and to compel that life to live by that same power, the power that is God's power, God's ability. I can remember years ago walking into a local restaurant and I was looking for a seat. It only sat about 15 or so people, if I recall, at that point. And I was turning to my right in a very loud voice to my left. said, Pastor Tim, what did you do to my stepmom? What did you, and then the person added, what did you and your church do to my stepmom? And I turned around and I quickly recognized who it was. And it was an individual that I administered to when they were in my youth group, when I was the youth pastor. And I said, hey, so-and-so, it's great to see you. And they said again, what did you do to my stepmom? And I said, well, what do you mean? Well, my stepmom doesn't smoke anymore. She doesn't drink anymore and can't remember if... I've heard her swear anymore. She doesn't like even act the same anymore. What'd you do to her? <laughs> and I said, so and so, it's just Jesus. Only Jesus could change a life to that extent. Only Jesus. And then this person says it in a way the, the whole restaurant can hear. And so my whole response was, because you could hear a pin drop on the carpet for all the people that were in the restaurant, when they're just kind of caught like deer in the headlights, here's this big person that walks in and has brainwashed a stepmom. And so everyone's listening to that individual and everyone's listening to my response and it's okay to, to blame transforming power on the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Because really, it's just a miracle, isn't it? We all know that. I can remember years ago, um, um, the police calling me when I was a youth pastor here in my office on a Monday morning and that a mom of a teenager that had been here was seeking to put a restraining order on me and the church because of how her son had come home after trusting Christ here 
And when he walked in the door that evening, he asked his mom if he could wash the dishes and empty the dishwasher. (laughs) Apparently, that was a first-time event. And then he said, Mom, I'm going to go up and... True story. I'm going to just go up up and clean my room. It's great to see you. And Mom, I'm going to bring my laundry down. And uh, you're going to have to teach me how to do my laundry, Mom. I just want to be a help. And... um, Mom, I'm going, to go, I'm going to go get a job. I'm just going to stop here real quick. Natha, it is amazing to see you here today. Good to see you, my friend. <laughs> Mrs. Carter, I, I'm just going to help them not embarrass you too much in the middle of my sermon here, but I just saw you. I was like, wow, what a joy to have you back. Praise God. And uh, so the police said, this is the reason for the restraining order. I said, okay. He goes, their kid just came home last night and she's, she's absolutely bamfoozled why he would want to clean the dishes and clean his room and do the laundry. And she's very upset with the church for whatever you did to affect that change. Now, what parent would be upset with that? Right? People could get paid thousands of dollars to bring about that transforming power in a kid's life. Like what teenage boy wants to do that? And they, the mother's just telling you to never call, stop by, or see her son again. And I never did. I never did. I saw him the following summer walking around the Great Lakes Mall. And he came to me and he said, I just want to let you know I've not been allowed back, but I know I'm saved and my life continues to change and I'm not allowed to go to church anywhere, but I want to let you know I'm okay, you know. I can remember a particular couple, a family that had distanced themselves from this couple who had gotten saved after this couple was involved in occult practices with the family. And they lost everything and everybody as a young married couple because they had been born again and it's a life-transforming power that set their lives in in an antithetical direction from darkness towards light. And they lost everything. There's really no explanation how that happens apart from all-powerful, unmerited favor from God, which is his grace. Hail him who saved you by his grace and crown him Lord of all. I guess if we asked what is the source of the spiritual change and character and the amazing peace experienced by these people and by you, In chorus, we would all say, why, that's the grace of God. That his children have come to know in salvation, and now they're walking by that same grace, and and we would all be correct in that answer. Grace saves, it transforms, and it grows God's people. So here's my proposition for this morning. Seeing grace change and grow people is the measure of ministry that has integrity. And please write that down, especially in light of all that's happened to and among churches in the last 12 months. Seeing saving grace change, we could say spiritually transform in a born-again experience, seeing God's unmerited favor transform a life and then grow that life is the measure of ministry that has integrity. That's the message of the passage before us today. This truth is critical to embrace. It's a fundamental truth. It's it's essential. It's bedrock truth. Genuine success of any ministry can exclusively be measured by how grace operates in that assembly. Are people being saved? 
Are people worshiping? Are people serving? Are people growing all by an ability that's not their own? Paul brought the gospel to the Corinthian people. God was merciful and gracious to save them and to grow them, but there were those who sought to roadblock their growth and then ultimately hijack the content of the gospel that brought that transforming power to their lives. We've described these people a handful of times in our study since we began 2 Corinthians, and we'll see their influence throughout the whole book, but Paul finds himself having to defend his own ministry now because of these religious ones who had not tasted of the grace of God and salvation and then consequently distracted Corinthian believers from pursuing growth in Christ-likeness. These hucksters were not people of grace. You know, the success of ministers across the country in this past year has often been measured by worldly standards and not the standards of grace. Many of you can just imagine what some pastors have endured having never been trained to wrestle through the crises that the last 12 months have delivered to our doorsteps. Truthfully, some pastors got personally distracted from the ministry of grace in their own assemblies. They allowed the noise from the outside to dictate the ministry that was happening on the inside. There were many situations where pastors desired to remain strong, living, and serving by the graces of God in ministry, but their flocks became so distracted by the noise on the outside, and they wrestled with their own pastors about what true ministry success was, was even in a time of crisis. We're not going to sit here and provide the laundry list that you're all very familiar with already about all the distractions that virus and virus protocols and political platforms and all the stuff brought to us in the last 12 months. But both pastors and people, many became distracted apart from what true grace is and how it operates in a flock. I don't know all that the church has faced in the past 12 months, and I know each church varies in its experience, but I know the pastors of many of these churches, many of whom I know, those pastors were held to standards that weren't always uniquely standards of grace. And you know what? The same thing was happening here in the church of Corinth. Paul that had brought the gospel to them, seen the life change in them, helped them in their early stages of growth, who's now away planting other churches, has had the influence of God's grace hijacked among the people of God in Corinth. He's written his first letter. They've responded. They're now back growing, but still vulnerable, and they're vulnerable to the hucksters within who are seeking to distract them about what is falsely virtuous and distract them away from what truly is operational only by the grace of God, which is the saving and the growing of a soul. Paul knows the Corinthian people had been distracted by secularists and mere religious one. He also knows that many of these folks were saved but these distracted saints were now adversely affecting even gospel progress inside and outside of the local church. The secular ones, the religious ones, had distracted the saints by criticizing Paul's person, by criticizing his message and criticizing his ministry which Paul seeks to, in the first 10 verses of chapter 6, completely defend as being holy from grace. 
Paul's determination to rescue these recently distracted but now faithful believers to remain focused on what successful ministry leadership is and does should be and should remain to us absolutely exemplary. He humbly pleased for these saints to first look around and realize how God's grace was operational among them. Then he asked them to consider what the grace has God, God has done to change his own life and then theirs. And with a humble, tender transparency, Paul opens his heart once again to remind these saints that only the grace of God influenced them through his preaching. And only the grace of God could sustain Paul in life and ministry that he was living on behalf of the Corinthian believers. So I'm going to go back and restate our proposition here very quickly this morning, and it's this. Seeing saving grace change and grow people is the measure of ministry that has integrity. So if you're ever going to evaluate if Grace Church is a healthy church, let that proposition be the clothesline upon which you evaluate the church. I could stop preaching there this morning. If any church is worth its weight in grace, <laughs> there should be people giving the gospel, there should be people being saved, and there should be people through biblical apparatus growing by the same grace that saved them and interdependently doing so. If that could be said of Grace Church of Mentor, then praise God for his amazing grace. But folks, it really is that simple. Anything else causes confusion, consternation, which leads to distraction. And my friend, God is not the author of confusion. There's another spiritual being who is. So Paul's just simplifying this profound message for hurting people. It's all of grace. And only grace can do supernatural things to change a life and to grow a life. So if you can remember these three words and these three parts of the text, it may be helpful to you to understand the text. First of all, I want to look at the operation of grace in verse 1, and then we're going to look at the um, consideration of grace and then a commendation. Operation, consideration, and commendation. The operation of grace in verse 1, the consideration of grace in verse 2, those are going to be two points we'll cover rather rapidly this morning, and we'll spend the larger part of our time on Paul commending the grace of God as seen in his life to the people of God to live out their lives according to the same grace. The operation of grace among us. Verse 1, And working together with him, we also urge you not to receive the grace of God in vain. The words with him are provided for you by English translation, if you're carrying a New American Standard Bible. But the words here, and working together, this is not merely the Apostle Paul working with the Corinthian believers and them working with him. This is both working with God. And the only reason we know that, because what preceded us in chapter 5 that we've already preached on, it's God's ministry of reconciliation that we are all a part of. It's the sufficiency of the righteousness of Christ. When we're born again, that's imputed to us, that leaves us in a right standing with God. This is all God's gospel ministry. So working together with God in his grace and his saving, transforming power, he says very, very clearly here, do not receive the grace of God without purpose 
or in vain. Genuine ministry is always by grace, and that grace is sourced in the person of God. Therefore, we do ministry with him together. The true grace of God transformed and is known by those who are truly born again. But these faithful ones, as we already said, had been distracted by the Corinthian false ones. To both the true believer and the false professing believer, Paul urges them not to receive the grace in God in vain. To the Christian, he says, you've seen the gospel operate in your life from the first day that you heard it and received it. Don't be derailed from your walk from the same grace of God that, you, that saved you and is developing you. That was the supernatural work of God. That was not me, Paul's saying. And we already reviewed 1 Corinthians 2, right? 1 to 5 in previous sermons when, he, when he's rehearsing his first entrance to them. He said, I didn't come into my own strength and, and my own ability as a weak human being. He said, I came to you preaching Christ only and him crucified all by demonstration of the spirit and power of God. That was all God. I can't change your life. I preach God's grace to you. He changed your life, not me. So he's telling them here, look, what was accomplished in your life spiritually was not brought forth humanly. So don't be distracted, stay focused. And then that leads us to the consideration of grace in verse number two, where Paul quotes a text from Isaiah 49. To both the saved in his consideration, now consider this of grace, right? To both the saved and the religious false ones among the Corinthians, he says, for he says, at the acceptable time, I listened to you. And on the day of salvation, I helped you. Behold, now is the acceptable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. Paul uses this post-captivity time in Israel's history to implore saints in a New Testament context to take advantage of spiritual freedom by grace in Christ. As the Old Testament Israelites had known freedom from spiritual and physical captivity. To those who had heard the gospel and gave lip service to it and not life service, he's saying, look, you need to be transformed by this grace. Today is your day of salvation. To those who, literally, to those who had been saved, don't receive the grace of God in vain. Now you need to take full advantage of God operating in your life after salvation to let that grace grow you towards Christ-likeness. It's all of grace, and that's what grace would have you consider. So I would ask you to consider this this morning. Are you born again? Do you have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ? And if not, I would ask you not to receive the grace of God in the salvation message without purpose. Please be born again. Please take this unmerited favor from God in Jesus Christ and receive him. Let him be the peace of your soul and the forgiveness of your sins. And for those of us that may have been a little distracted in the last year, as I have been oft times distracted personally, I would ask you to refocus upon the operation of grace in your life after salvation and let's get back to the disciplines of grace that Paul is now going to outline for us in his commendation of grace's ability. Okay? And let's focus on these things as undistracted, spirit-filled, transformed by grace Christians. Okay? So the commendation of grace is really found here in the remaining of this context all the way through verse 10. Okay? So let's consider the life of grace from a faithful leader in the Apostle Paul. For those of us who are leaders by title here, this is a great reminder for us. You've been appointed by the people of God. You're not self-appointed people. Since these are people of God, they've been transformed by the grace of God. They're growing by the same grace. The Spirit of God led them to appoint you to live out these virtues as commended by the Apostle Paul. And then for the flock, 
We're to do the same as we follow those who seek to follow Christ. So Paul continues to focus on what ministry with integrity really is. He, he remains focused on grace and salvation and in ministry growth, which breeds ministry integrity. Only now it's what grace has done to develop integrity in Paul's own life. He desires that the focus for the believers be on what grace is doing in his life and not on him personally. And he says here, giving no cause for offense in anything so that the ministry will not be discredited. He actually starts out that way. He's like, look, if you're going to look at me long enough, I'm going to mess you up. Don't look at me. Focus on what I could not do apart from the grace of God in me. That's the supernatural reality. And he said, if you're going to look at me, I'm going to discredit the ministry. I don't want to be a distraction to what God has done in his amazing grace among us. That's the good part. So Paul simply states here that he's always tried to serve. And you're going to hear this phrase throughout the rest of the sermon because I think this is what he's really doing. He's serving God by really serving the grace of God that was obviously working in the lives of people while keeping himself out of the way of its progress. The commendation that Paul begins with here is just that. Man-made ministry brings offense and ministry can be discredited. He's never been involved in the Corinthians' lives for um, a ministry pound of flesh. He could get out of it for his own sake. He's seeking to serve as Christ served. He did not come to be served, right? But to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. He's, as we've already seen in, in chapter 4, he's, he's poured out his life as Christ has poured out his life for us in great sacrifice so that God would be exalted in Christ all by grace. He sought to serve what grace was doing in the saving and growing work in a soul in the church of Corinth. He continues to layer and qualify how he sought to serve the people by serving what God was doing in his life and their lives throughout the remainder of this context. He does so by itemizing the hardships that he's endured as he served the people in Corinth. And as we already know, this is one of the three times he does this in the letter that we've pointed out in previous sermons. So as we pick our way through this list, I believe we need to see that operational, considerate, and commendable service to grace is what's happening here. Operational, considerate, commendable service to grace and to what it is doing in people's lives is always active and it's not merely words. God's grace is always active and it's never merely words. That's what Paul's saying here. Christ's ministry was certainly words, but it was never independent from obeying the will of his Father. It's active. And he's saying this is what God's grace does. It compels you to show your faith by the works, the good things that you do. You are saved. Now, do good. And Paul's saying this is what God's grace did in my life. Don't forget it. Okay? A friend of mine recently tweeted this. He said the celebrity pastor culture is terribly out of sync with 1 Peter 5, 1 to 4. If you remember those words of Peter, and uh, as he's, as he's um, instructing the, the elders, the pastors that are, that are overseeing the churches in, in Asia and Asia Minor, shepherd the flock of God, take oversight of it, not with compulsion, not for filthy lucre's sake. You know that text. He said, the celebrity pastor culture that we're in is terribly out of sync with that text. The flock is God's and shepherds are servants of the cheap shepherd, not superstars. Pastors exist for sheep, not sheep for pastors. 
The only reason I put that little quote from my friend in this context, it really conveys the heart of Paul here. He's the servant of the chief shepherd, and he's there to serve, really, the grace of God and how it's operated in their life from salvation to growth. He's just a servant. He's just a servant of grace. He's a servant to grace because it's God's grace. The idea that this is Pastor Tim's church or Pastor such and such a church is repugnant. And it should never be acceptable here. Paul would never commend himself as the religious ones did in chapter 2. Remember he said, do I need to come to you and, and bring a commendation to you again? To bring a reference to you again? Is not what God's done in Christ enough for you? God's done for you what religious people could never do. I couldn't save you. I couldn't grow you. But God's grace can. I don't need to commend myself to you all over again. I only commend Jesus Christ and, and him crucified. Everything Paul does is to serve the purpose of God as he serves the people of God and those who serve with this heart, this heart set, should I say, recognize that anything of value that is done in the church is all of God. So Paul lists nine ways here next and divides them into three groups in which he served what the grace of God was doing in the Corinthian church. So he continues on here by saying, in much endurance. Do you see that here? In much endurance, but in everything commending ourselves as servants for God, in much endurance. He's a servant to this grace, and he is willing to bear up. That's what that word endurance means. It means to bear up under something heavy, to carry a heavy load. And he says, this is all of my load, and this is why it's so heavy. It's only bearable by the grace of God that saved me and has grown me. It's only bearable by you, Corinthian people, by you, grace people, because of the grace of God that saved you and is growing you. We're all able to bear up under what he's going to describe here because of God, not because of us. So he says, in much endurance... I have lived under the weight of three things here first in this first grouping. Afflictions, hardships, and distresses, it says in your text. Afflictions, hardships, and distresses. Afflictions are just oppressive experiences. Regardless what the grace of God has brought me to, to face something oppressive, no man can help me endure through that alone. But God's grace can Hardships. These are just problems that don't go away. That's what the Greek word means here. These are problems that don't go away. They're unrelieved, adverse circumstances. And you know what? Sometimes God just allows that, doesn't he? And he allows that to show you how capable his grace is to keep growing and being formed into Christ. Distresses. These are just frustrating, tight corners. And if you want to Mark in your Bibles next to the word distresses there, 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 8, which we've already discussed. He's talked about some of these unavoidable tight corners where he feels squeezed to the nth degree in ministry. So under much endurance, he faces afflictions, hardships, distresses, and by grace, leadership that has integrity endures into the difficulties outlined here next as caused by men. So I guess we could say there's these three um, groupings of three, these nine things. Three are what God allows. Three are what man can do and has done to Paul or to me and you. And the other three I could say are somewhat self-inflicted, but it's a good thing. We'll get to that. So here's what man can do. And by the way, if you really want to find out what man can do in particular to oppress gospel thriving people just read the book of acts all right i'm just going to cross-reference the whole book of acts because we don't have time to read it all this morning just read it and this is what's happening to paul in the book of acts right beatings the text says imprisonments and tumults 
beatings, imprisonments, and tumults. Beatings, what's that? Figure it out. (laughs) Imprisonments, what's that? Pretty simple, right? Tumults, what's that? Really, the word tumult, as it would have been understood by a Corinthian believer at that point, was, was, was a civil disorder or a riot. We've all had eyewitnesses to what civil disorder and riots look like, right? In our culture in the last year. Such a sinful disgrace all that was. Tumults. But Paul is saying people were blaming him for the civil disorder and the tumults. And my goodness, we even start to see that happen in our own culture, right? With how paganism is now turning its sights on the moral fabric of Christianity in so many ways. We're now turning its sights on Christian colleges and then Christian schools and then inevitably churches. They're the problem, not us. That's what they're saying Paul is here. Whatever's going on in these certain circumstances, Paul, it's your fault. But it was the grace of God that allowed him to carry that inappropriate blame and still persevere. read an article this last week on, I I did pray for this this gal's soul after I read the article that she would be born again and know the peace of God because in her heart, because you could tell by reading the article, she certainly didn't know spiritual peace. And she said the real target in our culture really needs to be on schools like, she was writing on March Madness and the whole college tournament that's going on right now. She said the real target needs to be on schools like Oral Roberts who are the real haters in our culture. And she got their book, their manual, and she cited all of the spiritual virtues, moral virtues. And she called the the standing for these moral virtues and any one of the athletes that would sign their code of conduct as, 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 as haters and bigots. And these really are the people that are a problem in our culture. And, you know, that's becoming more and more of a refrain from a group that's, that's sad. So what do you do? Do you get angry? I don't. My heart breaks. That person needs to know Jesus. And then where does my heart go? The enemy can bring that as layered as they wish. They can blame the tumults and the riots on me. And who helps us get through it? God. God's grace. So we're not retaliating. We're living. We're living light. And grace as gracious people. So by God's grace, Paul discusses a third grouping here, which are self-inflicted hardships. He lists here labors, sleeplessness, and hunger. Labors here is a Greek word just means of the, the, the hardest work ethic possible in ministry. This is literally working himself to the bone. Right? This is, this is a physical level of work ethic that is... Um, only done because of the grace of God operating in someone's life. This is someone walking up to Paul and say, how in the world are you doing what you're doing in your work for Christ? And he would say what? I don't know except by the grace of God. (laughs) Sleeplessness. It means exactly what it says. When you serve... What the grace of God is doing, not only in your life, but in somebody else's life, it can compel you sometimes to go without sleep. And some of you are even experiencing that in your own discipling of one another. Sleepless nights, agonizing over the soul of the person that you're shepherding, and a struggle that they're going through. Right? Sleeplessness, and then hunger. This can refer, some people said, to fasting. I believe it could, but I think it primarily means that there's sometimes Paul just went without eating because he was so passionate about serving what the grace of God was doing in another believer's life. Right? And servants are never takers. Servants are always what? Do you hear me? There's only two kinds of people in the world. Givers and takers. Grace always compels the offering of oneself to what the grace of God is doing in another person's life to grow them. That's what Paul's saying here. 
I'm willing to self-inflict these things, not out of a religious sense of aestheticism, but, but um, listen, it's worth serving what God's grace is doing in your life. As I know you serve me because you see what I trust is God's grace operating in my life. So Paul now lists commendable moral virtues that serve the grace of God working in the lives of his people in verses 6 through 10. What are these moral virtues? This is a listing of the spiritual equipment, if you will. One author says, of grace necessary as we serve what grace is doing in the lives of God's people. He lists here purity, knowledge, patience, kindness, and genuine love all in the Holy Spirit. I really believe that's how the grammar of these verses play out or can be explained, should I say. He says here, uh, in the eh, verse six, in purity and in knowledge and patience and kindness in the Holy Spirit in genuine love. This is the spiritual equipment necessary that God's grace develops in our lives as we serve the grace of God in others. The word purity here just means simply moral uprightness. Moral uprightness. Certainly in the area of sexual purity, but all areas of biblical moral integrity. Knowledge is just the insight into the knowledge of what God's will is, is contained in his word, and allowing grace to assist us in living out his will that we learn from his word. That's all knowledge is. Learn the word, read it, learn it, live it. And if you're doing that, remember, it's God's grace that's operating in your life to help you do that. Patience. This is a bit different than the patience listed in verse 4, which is abiding under a heavy pressure that broadly describes hardship. This patient means putting up with people that are slow growers and sometimes kind of stubborn. It literally means patience with hard to get along with people. Okay. So that's like you having patience with me. <laughs> okay. But God's grace is enough in you, in Christ, to help another person who's a slow grower continue to be developed by God's grace. It kind of reminds me of 1 Thessalonians 5.14 where Paul says there's three kinds of people and he uses the same Greek word there. Be patient with all of them. There's always going to be the strong, the weak, and the feeble-minded. And it says there, and well, excuse me, the feeble-minded, the weak are the same. So the strong, the weak, feeble-minded, and the unruly. And he says, be patient with all of them. This is only by God's grace. How in the world do you sit down and you remain patient and kind and compassionate with an irritable, stubborn, slow-grower Christian? It's all by God's grace. No explanation in me how that can happen. None in me. I'm a bit more of an impetuous type. I really believe that he's just listing here virtues, moral virtues, the spiritual equipment of grace that the Holy Spirit is very interested in developing in your life. Some of these are even the fruit of the Spirit listed in Galatians 5, right? All of this is done, again, by an act of God's grace of indwelling you with the Holy Spirit who baptized you into Christ. And so even this divine pursuit of these virtues is all underpinned by the inworking of divinity within us. The mention of the Holy Spirit here is very intentional. Grammatically, as I said earlier, I believe he's mentioned here to help us understand that the, the moral virtues mentioned here are sourced in him and he indwells us. He is purity, knowledge, patience, kindness, and love. So not just his divine presence within us is to be recognized, but the giving of spiritual gifts is to be considered as well. As we live out our spiritual gifts, we do so according to these set of moral virtues. So it is with holiness of spirit, we live governed by the Holy Spirit as we serve what the grace of God is doing in other people's lives as well as our own. And then he says here in verse 7 that he continues to minister in the word of truth. Several prepositional phrases here. In the word of truth and the power of God by the weapons of righteousness. Another trilogy of activities that Paul's involved with and enjoying all by God's grace. 
The word of truth here just simply means truthful speech, most likely within our immediate context of chapter 5 and 6. It's the content of the gospel. I'm not going to waver from what it means to be saved. I'm going to always speak gospel truth. I'm going to do so in the power of God, most likely a reference to what we've already said this morning from 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. If there's anything miraculously happening in someone's life to help them live countercultural and antithetical to their previous way of living, it's not me, it's God. It's, it's, it's His grace. By the weapons of righteousness for the right hand and for the left. I really believe this is all in reference to putting on the armor of God. As spoken of in Ephesians chapter 6 and 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 verses 1 through 5. And he uses the, the, the metaphor of a right hand and a left hand. Because in battle in this day, right, your right hand carried the sword and your left hand carried the shield. One was always making progress while one was also defending so he's speaking of these virtues being necessary in a believer's life as, as aided by supernatural grace for the progress and the defense of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's always actively moving forward. So Paul's commendable ministry is further explained in nine antithesis here to wrap up the text this morning. In each, there will be man's evaluation of ministry, and then there will be a spiritual evaluation. And as we consider these this morning, as we conclude, let's remember that these were Paul's realities that many, but not every believer recognized. So that's why he's kind of bringing them up here. And Paul's intent for listing these here is not to frighten us, to make, but to make sure that we are careful not to be evaluated by man, but by, to be evaluated by God's grace, which is sourced in God. And to be evaluated by those who are spirit-governed, who are living by the same grace. So this is what he says. Verse 8. By glory and dishonor. This is how he's evaluated, by evil report and good report. Regarded as deceivers, yet true. To the religious hucksters and to the pagans outside the church, his message was completely dishonorable and not to be commended of men. But to those in Christ, it's all glory to God. All glory to God. To those who are outside the church, they're peddling evil reports of Paul. But to those who are in Christ, it's nothing but good news. Many believe these first two are in reference to Paul's preaching ministry. For man, the gospel is too narrow, therefore dishonorable and quite frankly evil. Too narrow. But for the believer, it's glorious and wonderful news. It's regarded as deceivers, yet true. Paul would be labeled as an imposter, yet he was the first to bring the gospel of truth to the Corinthians by which they experienced spiritual transformation. He goes on in verse 9 to say, as unknown yet well-known, by the world's standards and by the standard of the religious, religious ones inside the church, Paul was an absolute zero. He was a nobody. But by the people of God, by the grace of God, he was appreciated. As dying, yet now we live. Many people believe that the religious hucksters and really those outside the church, it just meant that they just didn't mind whether he lived or died. He was of no use to them. But we know from Philippians 1.21, which is in the context of enduring difficulties, for me to live as Christ and to die is gain. So we choose to live faithfully all by the grace of God. As punished, yet not put to death. Again, these former two points, these, these two point to the world's tireless opinion of true gospel progress. Seems to always be failing, never be popular, never getting traction. 
It's always bringing itself to miserable consequences. Is it really worth it? But to the believer of the gospel, it's why we live. And it isn't ever death to die. Christ in you will always be greater than the crisis before you. Let's remember that. He goes on to say as we go to prayer this morning, as sorrowful yet always rejoicing. Our hearts break when friends and family reject the gospel, but look around you this morning and see those who live by it. As you're sorrowful, rejoice as eyewitnesses of God's transforming grace. As poor yet making many rich, as having nothing yet possessing all things. These two final need to be understood in a relationship to the culture of the time. Secular philosophers would have considered it commendable to live in poverty for the sake of the promotion of the cause of their philosophers' teachings. But for Paul, the gospel message enriched the soul for eternity, and the promise of spiritual possessions both now and in the age to come were abundant and rich. There was now no vow of poverty to be taken by Paul, who was commending his ministry humbly to the people of Corinth once again. And you can cross-reference here Philippians chapter 4, verses 10 through 14. Uh, I would say probably 8 through 14 there. Nah, keep it 10 through 14. For this reason, Paul says there, after having received the seven years saved up offering for him, he's thanking them and he's saying this, look, I learned how to live with absolutely nothing. You've provided me with everything. But in either state, I've learned to be content. Right? So whatever God provides, it's all provided by his grace and it's always enough for me to live by grace. It's always enough. And I'm content with the reality. Think about that. It's not contentment with stuff, a lot of it or a little bit. The contentment is in being able to live out gospel progress regardless of the cost because I know God's always going to provide anyway. Okay. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, this is much to consider this morning. We understand that, but we're so thankful for this truth being preserved for us regarding the operation, the consideration, and the commendation of your grace. Lord, help us remember us as a church. Please, God, by your Spirit's help, aid us in remembering what doing church with integrity really is by the authority of this text. May we wrestle our hearts and minds always to the authority of this text and the operation of grace within us and among us. And may we give glory to you for those things. May we be enraptured by those realities that we see miraculously with our own eyes within us and among us. And may those things that are of thy spirit continue to thrive among us as we are enraptured by them and we remain as best we can undistracted by all that is unbelief, possibly within or without. In Jesus' name.